Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so today's episode is brought to you by Zencaster. And I remember back in the day where I was looking at putting together Zencaster, I was looking for a solution that would really help me in putting things together. And essentially, this is what allowed me to bring deal makers to life. I mean, basically, Zencaster, what it is, is an all-in-one solution where you just send the link to the person that you're looking to interview. Essentially, they would plug in their computer with their video, with the audio, and then basically you are good to go. You would just piece everything together, give it to your audio engineer, or even edit it yourself, and you are off to the races. Now, if you're looking at getting into podcasting, you should definitely check Zencaster out. And you could also get a 30% discount. And this is a discount code that you will be able to redeem by going into Zen, and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers and then number zero. And lastly, you know, I was very much blown away when I found out that investing in wine has been one of the best kept secrets amongst the ultra wealthy. And this is now not the case anymore. You know, I came across this solution, which is called VinoVest, and they are a great, great solution that allows you to diversify investing by implementing or including wines into your portfolio. I mean, take a look at this. Wine has one third of the volatility of the stock market, and yet it has outperformed the global equities market over the past 30 years with 10.6% annualized revenues. So it's a really good way to diversify your portfolio. And you could also get two months of free investing by just going into the Send and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers. And by just going there, you will be able to redeem your discount. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a pretty interesting guest, a guest that has done it before. He took his last company public uh, in a remarkable journey, but right now he's doing something very exciting, and we're going to be talking about it today in addition to talking about his journey. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Bruce Lucas. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So originally born and raised in Indiana. So how was life growing up there? Give us a walk through memory lane. Yeah, it's very simple upbringing. We, we grew up in a house with six people. My dad had a fifth grade education. He drove a truck for 30 years. My mom has a GED. You know, very, very humble kind of Indiana background and roots. No silver spoons. You had to work for everything that you had in life. And that work ethic stayed through me up until the present day. Nice. Now, you stayed in Indiana for quite a bit. So why did you, st I mean, typically in the U.S., you see here people going for college, you know, they go one state or to the other, to the other side of the country. In your case, you stayed in Indiana, not only for college, but then also for the JD. I mean, it took a while for you to, to perhaps leave the surroundings of your home. Yeah. And, and that was really a reflection of the price, right? I had in-state tuition 
coming from, you know, uh, a family that didn't have a lot of money. I had to work my first two years and save up to go on to campus. So I, I did a community college the first two years, saved money, went to um, IU Bloomington for undergrad and and stayed for law school because you got the benefit of in-state tuition, which is the only thing I could possibly afford. Now, in this case, why becoming a lawyer? Why? Since I was a kid, I, I had a fascination with geology and law. Don't ask me why, but I love them both, still do. Uh, so undergrad major was double major in geology and environmental science. And then I realized, you know, what, what you get paid as a geologist isn't, isn't enough to pay the bills. And so I said, okay, I'll follow my second passion. I'll, I'll go to law school. At least you have an opportunity to get ahead and make connections. And you can translate the law degree into the business world every single day. And, and so I went that route because it had greater upside. And you landed in New York City at a pretty big firm, and that is Wild Gotchal. And uh, there you were involved in a pretty big bankruptcy proceeding. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, as a, as a baby attorney, I, I started with Wild Gotchal in 2003. I was actually headquartered in their Houston office, had an office in New York, and then Uh, had another office in London and would kind of go between the three cities as needed. But yeah, Enron was our client. They, we did their Chapter 11. So at the time, the largest, most complex Chapter 11 ever. And I went to that firm specifically to do the Enron case. It was, it was an opportunity of a lifetime. And I wouldn't be where I am today without that case. Now, In that sense, I mean, it sounds like the business side of things was always there for you, right? Yes. I mean, you obviously combine law with business, but at one point you decide that maybe the number side of things is probably more appealing. So what, what happened there? Yeah, I was, it was back in 2008 and, you know, I was at Wild Gotchel and, you know, in order to become a partner at that firm, I would have had to move to New York and that's not something that I was looking to do. And at that time I had a five-year-old son and just kind of coming from Indiana and the simple upbringing, I, I really didn't want to raise my son in Manhattan. No offense to people who do, it's just, that was my personal choice. And, you know, I, I had always had an interest in, in just getting out of law and moving to the business side. So early 2008, I came up with a thesis around short energy. And, you know, I'm in Gulf Coast, Enron, Houston, Texas. I'm at the, I'm right at the epicenter of Gulf Coast energy. And if you remember back then, oil was $180 a barrel, gas was seven bucks a gallon, You had a, a housing crisis that was just starting to really show its, its true extent. Bear Stearns had just failed. And it didn't take a genius to look at all the indicators and understand that we're headed toward a recession. And being a bankruptcy attorney, I understood the cycles. And it, in a recession, energy crashes. And so the more I dug into it, the more I saw that the magic number was $120 a barrel for oil. Uh, once you start getting below that that number, most of the, the loans out there to Gulf Coast companies go into default. They're unserviceable. Bankruptcies are going to happen. So I, I came up with a business plan. I pitched it to a Cargill subsidiary, and uh, we formed a hedge fund, Infinity Investment Funds, focused on distressed energy deals. That was the first kind of quantum leap out of law into the business world. 
I mean, no kidding. I mean, you're here on one of the biggest law firms in the world, and then all of a sudden you you take the leap. But you ended up taking another leap. So you go from like, uh, you went from corporate, very corporate, to corporate, but a little bit less corporate, and then into like full-blown startup mode. So yeah. why why did you go ahead with that transition? What was that uh, journey like? Yeah, I mean the, the 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 hedge fund deal. You know, we signed a three year contract, and I I think after eighteen months it was over. I mean, we just made so much money in such a short period of time. I didn't really want to stay in that uh, situation of having basis risk, and prices were starting to move back up again once the world uh, didn't end, and money flowed back into that sector. So I just saw a good exit opportunity, and I took some time off to recharge the battery spend more time with the family and, and especially my son. And uh, I, you know, got bored pretty quickly. I mean, I, I thought, okay, I'll retire for a few years. Six months in, I was like, I, I can't do this. And so I started looking for my next opportunity. And you know, I'm great with numbers. I understand kind of, you know, if you can read the numbers and read data, they tell you a story. And what I saw at that time was an opportunity in Florida homeowners insurance. We had a lot of things happening that were very positive. We had citizens insurance, which is the state run insurer had 1.5 million policies and they'd let you come and just cherry pick whatever you wanted, right? Just take it out. So you could instantly get hundreds of millions in revenue. Um, the numbers there looked fantastic. And then our number one expense in insurance is, is reinsurance. And we were tracking capital inflows into Bermuda on the on the tail end of the Great Recession. And what we saw was an imbalance. We saw just an oversupply of capital. And as a result, we had a thesis around, you know, reinsurance uh, pricing declines. And that turned out to be accurate. It dropped 20% a year, three years in a row. And so you throw that into the bottom line. That was, it was a huge upside opportunity. So I just saw a great opportunity, put together a plan, raised $60 million and jumped in with both feet. Because what ended up the uh, business model of heritage insurance? Oh, it was, you know, we would start by taking policies out of citizens in Florida, and then we would transition to a voluntary rider of homeowners insurance and, and eventually spread out of the state of Florida. So that's what we did. We, we hit the takeout opportunity pretty hard. In 2015, just two and a half, three years into the business plan, I started my multi-state expansion. I did some strategic M&A. I bought a, the largest homeowner carrier in Hawaii, which is Zephyr Insurance. Uh, started writing business in the Southeast states. And you know, our plan was just to continue to grow the homeowner line and be a super regional carrier, which we did. And then along the way, we, we, we didn't get very far into it. We made so much money the first several years that we, we ended up taking the public, uh, the company public on the niece. And so, you know, things really exploded from that point in time because we had excess capital to support the growth. Now, what was that experience like of taking a company public? It was horrific. It was the most mind-numbing experience of my life. You know, you, you have to sit with the underwriters for, I think it took us about four months to sit through the underwriters, meetings, due diligence, et cetera. Then you have to do all the SEC filings. And then once you get approval, you, you start your roadshow. And back then the roadshows were in person. 
So you're literally flying from city to city to city over a two week period. You might be in 25 cities. And, you know, I, there were times that wake up in the middle of the night. I had no idea where I was. I thought I was in a hotel room in somewhere in Texas and I was in a hotel room in San Francisco. And you get out of bed to get a glass of water or whatever and run right into the wall. You know, you're just running on fumes at the end of that process. But it was a very surreal experience for me, you know, kind of going through that, uh, finishing the roadshow. And I'll never forget standing outside of the Nice watching the huge banner kind of blow in the wind of heritage insurance uh, the night before our IPO. That was, that's when the moment really hit home for me. That's amazing. Eventually you ended up, uh, you know, after, after quite a while, because, you know, this journey was about almost nine years, you know, for you. How was that process where you realized that uh, maybe it's time to, you know, turn page and, and move on? Yeah, that was a tough decision. Uh, in 2015, I signed a long-term extension with the company, and that was a five-year contract, and it was going to end in 2020. And, you know, I, I, I always told shareholders and the board I would stay on through the end of the contract, and then we could reevaluate and just kind of see where things are, and I fulfilled that promise. Um, all in all, I, I was at Heritage nine years, and in that nine years, we had an impressive run. You know, we had 500 million in pre-tax profits. We were profitable every single year. And for a coastal uh, homeowners insurer, that's, I think we're the only company that did that in that span. Um, grew the company from startup to 1.1 billion in revenue, formed strategic relationships with Geico, Liberty Mutual, Safeco. I mean, just on and on and on. By every metric, when you looked at Heritage, it was an absolute home run. 99% of entrepreneurs that start a company like that are going to put the rest of their career there because it doesn't happen often. I'm a little different. I need the challenge. I, I, I like to build companies. I like to reinvent business models, do things differently. Um, and as I was sitting in my office in 2020, and I'm looking at yet another extension from the company, I, I knew I wasn't going to take it. And it was a, a lucrative extension, but I wanted to do something new. I wanted to do something in the technology sector, and I wanted to reinvent the way the insurance process works. And I knew to do those things, I'd have to start from scratch because it's a thousand times harder to take a stoic institution that's built on old world ways of insurance and make that into a modern insure tech. And so I, I passed the reins to my good friend, Ernie Garrete, who had been with me for nine years and uh, took about a year to, to formulate the business plan. And then I launched Slide in the fourth quarter. Wow. So then how did the idea of Slide come to you? Yeah, it, it came to me in bits and pieces. And, it, you know, I, I think what's what's different about us versus the rest of the insurtech sector I think the the predecessors in this business, they, they just come at it from a tech standpoint. And then they, my opinion, they've tried to adopt or adapt insurance to the technology. My approach was a lot different. I was looking at what they were doing and really scratching my head saying, that's just, none of this stuff's going to work. Um, you have to adapt the technology to the insurance model. And so it really started by kind of looking what some of the 
you know, the lemonades, hippos of the world were, were doing and just looking at it through the insurance lens and saying, I think it has to be done differently. And that was kind of the first thought I had in that process back in, you know, call it early 2020. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought about what are the unique challenges? How do you reinvent insurance at like a microcosm level? Because that's where the value add is. It's not in putting a chat bot on. It's in actually changing the plumbing of the insurance carrier so that it's tech enabled, more efficient, more profitable. And I knew that, you know, we had to have AI in the mix. A, a big part of what we're doing is AI. And I knew I'd have to solve for the data deficiency because AI is not really worth anything without massive amounts of credible data to support it. Um, and so I started thinking about all these different pieces. Like I said, it took me about a year to put it all together and solve all these different problems and, you know, how I'd organize and structure the company. And it just happened over a long period of time. So then for a slide, how do you guys say make money? Yeah, it's, uh, I believe insurance is an ecosystem. And I think you have to control that ecosystem whenever, however possible. So for us, we are full stack. That means that we are on risk as the insurance carrier, you know, knock on wood, hopefully we make an underwriting profit. We have an MGA that is extremely profitable. We've already taken our, our technology approach and signed four SaaS deals with other insurance carriers. Hopefully there'll be a fifth to announce soon. You know, we'll, we'll do a captive reinsurer where we can make good margins. I did that for nine years at Heritage. We'll have an in-house agency that'll write direct to consumers. But most of our business is going to be through independent agents because I do believe in the IA channel, something different about us. But you take all these different pieces and you put them together on a consolidated basis. And what you're doing is creating an insurance ecosystem where you can make money on different aspects of policy creation and services. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, you had 
the experience of having built before a one billion plus company. What was perhaps that lesson that you learned about people? Because it's all about people and, and the team that you build around you. What was that lesson that you learned that you absolutely knew that you were you would implement in this journey with slide around people? Yeah, I, I that's a great question. I'd say on the employee side, what I learned about people is that you you want to hire people who have a lot of fire, a lot of passion, that don't have a clock, who are compassionate people. I have a no jerk rule at the company. I don't want yellers and screamers and people who do office politics. Uh, I'd say on the agent side, I, I what I've learned about agents over the years is that they they just want the truth. They want straight shooters. They want to say uh, or be told kind of what you're willing to do, what you're not willing to do, and they'll create business to fit that. And on the policyholder side, I'd say that what I've learned is most people are inherently honest. I really truly believe that. I think in Florida. The, 99% of the problems begin when a third party gets involved in the insurance process, usually a public adjuster, an attorney, a contractor, people who don't necessarily have the moral scruples that I would have or my colleagues have. And so you, you, you have to make sure that you're addressing people in multiple formats, know your audience, right? Your, your audience wants different things at different points in time. And you, you have to learn how to manage all of those pieces together. Now, as you're thinking about people too, you know, people has to do with money. And you guys have raised quite a bit of money. How much capital have you guys raised uh, today? Yeah, we, we, had a, we had a pretty historic A round. We, we raised $106 million of equity on the A round. And, you know, that was fourth quarter. So that not that long ago, but it's already fully deployed. You know, I had a lot of people telling me in the process, that's too much money. Why do you need all this capital? Why don't you do it in small pieces, just like everybody else does? And, and, you know, my answer to them was always, well, I'm just limiting market opportunity. There's huge market opportunities out there right now, which is one of the things that's compelling about the business plan. And if I don't have the capital to take advantage of the market opportunity, we're not going to get the upside of it. You know, it's, it wasn't enough. And, you know, here we are, it's March 15th. So we've, we've only been around for a few months. We've already fully deployed 106 million. We've already done one incredibly accretive transaction generating 400 million in recurring revenue. You know, you, you, you need lots of capital in this business, especially when there's opportunities that are out there in the market that don't come around very often. Timing's everything. Um, so I'm very, I'm very proud of that capital raise. It was historic on every level, but I'm even more proud that we were able to deploy it in such a meaningful way in such a short period of time. Do you think that the fact that you built a company from nothing to over a billion in revenue was a little bit helpful to, to close that yes. round? <laughs> Track record. Yeah. Track record matters, right? And I think investors in this sector, they, they're, they're migrating away from InsureTech 1.0. And InsureTech 1.0 are all the kind of, and I'm not saying they're all this way, but for the most part, they have no carrier operation experience at all. It's a miracle if they have any type of insurance operation, but in particular, insur insurance carrier experience is 
the number one thing that you need when you're full stack. And honestly, I think there's only two companies in the entire sector that have that. It's it's slide and tip tap. We're the only two. Like say whatever you want about, you know, the insure tech market, but it, I could say these two companies truly understand insurance. And and so investors now are more focused on what I refer to as InsureTech 2.0, which is, I think, the next quantum leap in the space. And we're the first company in the 2.0 kind of revolution. And it's an InsureTech whose business plan, operations, model, experience, et cetera, comes from the carrier side of insurance because they truly understand every little single thing in the in the in the infrastructure how it works why it works how it relates to the other parts and you need that domain knowledge in order to uh, create technology that enhances that operating model and so it was very very big for us coming into this raise with my track record uh, running an ins- a large scale insurance carrier across 15 coastal states track records actually matter. And uh, that, that made it a heck of a lot easier. There's no doubt about it. No kidding. Now, in this case, when you do an A round, you know, there needs to be like some validation, you know, like uh, traction. I mean, you guys just, just got out there. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's incredible, like remarkable in this sense. You know, the question that I wanted to ask you is how did you go about storytelling in a way in which they were able to really understand the canvas with the same colors that you had in your own mind, because that's very difficult to really yeah. convey and to do it in a way in which it's very tangible for the investor to really take that bet, you know, at, at, at these levels that we're talking at, when there's really not that much to really show. Correct. And really the only thing that I had to show on day one other than my resume and track record, I, I had a phenomenal partnership signed with Heritage Insurance, my old company. And that was not easy to do. They were pretty tough negotiators. And I knew kind of going into this slide journey that AI had to be a central part of what we do. And, you know, I, you hear that kind of phrase banded around all the time. Oh, we have artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, we're, we're different. And then you ask them, how are you using it? Uh, we're, we're using it in the underwriting process, like general statements, right? And I know BS when I hear it. And I know for a fact that none of those companies have real AI that do anything meaningful. And right. the meaningful side of it is loss ratios and reinsurance. And they don't have the data to do anything in a statistically credible fashion and without the data, you really, you're just like throwing darts at a dartboard. And so I knew I had to solve for that. And my, my first foray here was to approach Heritage and, and cut a deal where we partner up. And, you know, they, they ended up taking a piece of the equity at Slide and they were willing as a result to share their data and, and do a SaaS deal. And the data that I had in place was immense. It was 2.7 trillion dollars in TIV plus 15 years of historical claims data. To put that first deal in perspective, take the entire full stack insurtech industry, all the homeowner carriers that are out there, add them up collectively, they are a fraction of that number, right? So it's an immense statistical advantage 
I think investors really bought into that. They really saw the, the power of data and what you can do with it and why it was such a, a huge competitive advantage. You know, so we've just built on it since then. Since signing that deal, we actually have over $5 trillion in TIV data now and 20 years of historical claims information. And, you know, I, I can't even begin to add up like what an advantage that is over the market. I'm 50 times, 70 times, I'm not sure, but it's huge. Um, and so we've kind of followed that storytelling with actually doing the things we talked about. And, and that's been very helpful as well. But you're right. It's hard to tell the story. And, you know, when you're in a startup mode, you're you're truly a startup. I had a resume. I had a I had a nice partnership with Heritage. And I, I think I was able to clearly explain to investors what we were doing, why we were doing it, how we were doing it, where and, you know, what the capital would be used for and, and, and you know, how it would be deployed. And investors just they bought into it because, you know, they've seen the track record, they see the vision, they see where we're going. You know, that made it a lot easier. Now, imagine you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of slide is fully realized. What does that world look like? Yeah, that's a great question. I'd say somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 billion to 20 billion in, in annual premium. Um, coast to coast, multi-lines, not just homeowners, but auto and small commercial, et cetera, and extremely profitable and, and having an, an underwriting process that is that is automated and driven by data and artificial intelligence. I mean, that's where this industry is going. I, I think that too many uh, for too many years, the industry's just been operated the same way. I agree with InsureTech 1.0. It's a stoic business, hasn't changed much in 100 years. It's highly fragmented, et cetera. I think what this market is waiting for is someone that can come along with a statistical advantage on data like we have to apply that in a way to automate the underwriting process through artificial intelligence and generate profitable business at the end of the day. And that's where we are. And I, I do expect us to be profitable. I, I just don't want to settle for anything less than that. I've, I've never had a full operating year where I didn't make a profit, including a startup year. So knock on wood, hopefully this year is, is the first step on that journey toward the behemoth that I know that we can become. Uh, but I've got very grandiose ambitions for this company, and I, I think we can get there. And I think we can get there faster than anyone's ever done it before because we're starting out with such a big advantage with capital and data. Nice. Now, imagine you had the opportunity of having a chat with that younger Bruce. I'm taking you back in time to maybe that moment that you were thinking about uh, making that leap from the hedge fund to Heritage, and you had the opportunity of having a sit down with that Bruce, that younger Bruce, and giving that younger Bruce one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Yeah, it would have to be spend extra time on the business plan. You, you just, I can't, there's two things that you need, right? I, in my opinion, you need a rock solid business plan. I look back at Heritage, I had a great business plan, but nothing of the detail of what I have that slide. And, you know, I, I think I could have done even better at Heritage had I spent more time focusing on 
where am I going to be in five years, 10 years, 15 years, rather than where am I going to be next year? And so you have to have a longer term business plan, a longer term vision that is flexible, that you can move in and out of. And I'd say the other thing I'd, I'd, I'd make sure to emphasize, and I probably knew this even the younger Bruce version, which is timing is everything. And I, you could have the best business plan in the world, the best team, tons of capital. And if your timing is, is ill-advised, you're just not going to do well. You can have a mediocre business plan in circumstances internally and be at the best timing possible. You could do extremely well. So it's, it's really a combination of understanding where markets are and formulating what the timing is for the different aspects, stages of your business plan, because what works in the first three or four years might not work in years five to seven. And so you, you've, you've got to understand the timing of markets and, and what's going on there, kind of see the future, and then form your plan to fit that. Now, one bonus question, because you're obviously an expert, you know, you've um dealt with the market cycles. You've been a bankruptcy attorney in the past, and it sounds like timing things is something that you're good at. Uh, so I guess given what we've seen now with COVID, now with the war, you know, with the Russia and Ukraine, and obviously market goes in cycles. We've been in this bull you know, market for a while. Where do you see things you know, heading? I mean, have you seen any trend or anything there that maybe you know, founders that are listening should be aware of? Yeah, I, I think we're hyperinflation's here to stay. I'll, I'll say that. I, I don't think that's going away anytime soon. And you know that that can impact your business in a lot of different ways. I mean, fortunately for insurance, we're kind of recession proof. It's a product you have to have it. If you have a mortgage, you have to have homeowners insurance. So you know, I look at market cycles and recessions like COVID cycle, for example. You know, our economy crashed. We had record growth at Heritage during COVID. It's a product you have to buy. I yeah. love that about insurance. It's not nearly as sensitive to, to market undulations and economic cycles as other kind of consumer-driven spending businesses are. But I do think that what the future holds, particularly in Florida, I think you can expect your your homeowners insurance premiums to skyrocket for the next three to five years. And I think inflation in general is going to be around for a while. I mean, it's just a fact. We're at a 40-year high for inflation. And that doesn't look like it's abating at all. So I think that you have to plan your business around that. And, and for us, we have to be understanding of the fact that there are some people that just might not be able to afford the product anymore. That's probably the biggest risk factor and what that does to families. So you've got to come up with creative solutions for them. Maybe they compromise some of their coverage that they normally would get to reduce that premium bill. Um, their home is likely their largest asset that they own. And, you know, it has to be insured and protected. And so that's, Something that I've thought a lot about at Slide in the business plan is, you know, where do I see economic conditions moving as we go forward? I thought inflation was absolutely going to happen. Uh, I'm shocked at how much it's gone up. I mean, it's pretty amazing. But, you know, we wanted to plan a bespoke policy for the homeowner 
where they could pick their coverages. And maybe there are coverages that they just don't need, or maybe they should take higher deductibles, things, simple things that you can offer them that give them more options, more choices, lower premium, and then their dollars can go further on everything else in their life that's running up in cost. And that's why we always said, you know, a slide is your insurance, your terms. It's a concierge kind of bespoke type setup where we're, we're just giving greater empowerment to the consumer to find a policy that fits their budget. So for the people that are listening, Bruce, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, I would say you could contact us. You know, we, we've got a, a, a contact email on our website. That's probably the best way. Um, and all those eventually get routed to me. So, you know, we're still a pretty small company. You know, I, I, I want people to reach out. I talk to agents every day. Uh, I talk to concerned homeowners all the time. Uh, you know, go to our website, contact us and send us an email. Amazing. Well, hey, Bruce, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you. I, I appreciate the time. It was, it was enjoyable. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers Podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.